0: This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener Caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. A young woman had been brutally murdered and her body was found a short distance from her home. It appeared to be an open and shut case when a man admitted the crime. However, it soon became clear there was a problem with his conviction. Had the wrong person been punished for the murder of Patricia Curran? Welcome to Season 7, Episode 51 of They Walk Among Us. A podcast dedicated to UK true crime. Please listen to Season 7, Episode 50 for Part 1 of this two-part case. After a prolonged period of unrest life in White Abbey was finally returning to normal. Locals breathed a sigh of relief, knowing that Patricia Curran's murderer was safely locked up in Hollywell Mental Hospital. In February of 1958, however, six years after the killing, a headline in the People newspaper read, This boy did not kill Pat Curran. The article was penned by reporter Duncan Webb. Webb revealed that he had been conducting his own investigation into the murder for the past six months and had uncovered evidence that he believed proved that he and Hay Gordon was in fact innocent. The article began. The verdict on Gordon at his trial in March 1953 was guilty but insane. It is my verdict that he was not guilty, he was not insane, and he is not insane today. Webb disclosed that during his investigation, he interviewed people who did not testify at Gordon's trial. These potential witnesses suggested there was overwhelming doubt about the killer's identity. Webb also announced he had evidence to show that Gordon's alleged admission was a false confession. Webb submitted this evidence to Lieutenant Colonel Walter Topping, Northern Ireland's Minister for Home Affairs, and was warned there could be some challenges if the case were to be reopened. However, the reporter was confident that Topping would do all he could to see justice done. According to Webb, Gordon's parents in Scotland had been investigating the case themselves for more than four years under the belief that their son was innocent. Gordon's loved ones reached out to an esteemed Harley Street psychiatrist and asked they visit him in the mental health facility. After the meeting, the doctor concluded that Gordon was innocent, writing, In my experience of 50 or more murderers, I have never before experienced grave doubts about a prisoner's guilt. I have very serious doubt in this case, and after careful consideration my personal opinion is that the patient was not guilty. Gordon's parents then appealed for an investigator, and reporter Duncan Webb made himself available. Gordon's mother Brenda said, We were so sure of Ian's innocence that we spent about £4,000 for his defence at the trial. At that time we had just bought our house and new furniture. We sold practically everything. Duncan Webb had gone into the investigation with an open mind, wondering what he was going to find. The prosecution and the police argued that Ian Hay Gordon met Patricia Curran near the bus stop on the evening of her murder and walked with her to Glen House. In response, Webb wrote, I am satisfied myself that no such meeting took place. He revealed in the first of a series of articles that he met with Gordon at Hollywell Mental Hospital and described him as calm, candid, and balanced. Quote, To me he seemed ordinary in every way, just a rather lean and dark young man with a face perhaps a little more sensitive than most. Webb sat down with Gordon to talk, and Gordon professed, I did not commit this murder. I know I confessed, but I did not know what I was saying. For nearly five years now, I have been saying again and again that I am innocent. Why won't they believe me? Including his thoughts for the People newspaper, Webb wrote how he was certain of Ian Gordon's innocence, and based on the evidence, the public would be too once a full report on the crime had been published. I'm confident it will help to put right one of the gravest miscarriages of justice in our time, he said. During Webb's investigation, he searched the Curran's former home, which was now occupied by another family. Inside Patricia's bedroom, he discovered bloodstains on the floorboards. Most were large more than a foot across, and there were traces of blood in the aperture below. Webb only found them when he took up the floor. Blood had seeped through the cracks in the boards. There were also pages of old newspaper stained a deep red, and there were traces of blood in some sawdust. Even the joints that supported the floor were stained. Webb concluded that Patricia Curran was stabbed to death in her bedroom, then the killer moved her body to where it would ultimately be found. He said, It seems that this is a new piece of evidence not available to the authorities at the time of the trial. The murder of Patricia had been a frenzied one yet an extensive search of the area where her body was found turned up only three blood specks on leaves. Webb was convinced, at least on the face of it, the bedroom seemed a far more likely spot for the murder than the glen. Webb theorised that Patricia had been killed by an intruder who attacked her in the home, cleaned up the scene and then carried her outside. The reporter said, he had time to do this while the family was out of the house or in rooms far away from Patricia's. As Webb looked further into the case, he discovered that when witness Hetty Little came to the police station for the lineup, which included Ian Gordon, she did not initially pick him out. She then asked to see the men for a second time after which she identified Gordon as the man she had seen coming from the driveway at Glen House. When she testified at trial, she said of Gordon, Well, I think he was the man. Webb came to learn that Hetty was with another woman when she reportedly saw Gordon. He tracked down Agnes Curry she denied ever seeing a man emerging from the property on the evening of August 12, 1952. Eventually, Webb also managed to speak with Hetty directly and asked whether the man she saw that night had a black eye. She responded I was near to him. He was standing under the street lamp. I saw his face clearly. He did not have a black eye. Hetty Little's comments brought her assertion into question. On November 12th, 1952, it would have been evident Gordon had a painfully black eye, which he sustained during a scuffle with another man at RAF Edenmore. According to Hetty, the man she saw was walking towards Green Island on the pavement. He never once crossed the road to the sea wall. This contradicted Gordon's confession, in which he said he left Glen House and threw the murder weapon directly into the sea. Webb stated If Mrs. Little's recollection on this point was right, then one important part of Gordon's confession was false. The more Duncan Webb looked into the case, the more certain he was that Ian Gordon was wrongfully convicted. Webb sought to prove this with one small experiment. He returned to Glen House and placed a matchstick at the spot where Patricia's books and beret were found. He returned several hours later when it was dark. We had turned on his headlights and drove up the driveway. He recalled, Without the slightest difficulty, my headlamps placed it out. Indeed, it seemed to leap at me in the darkness. The significance of this experiment was to cast doubt on the murder. It was established that several journeys on foot and by car were made to Glen House that evening. Yet nobody saw the pile of books or yellow beret which were much more noticeable than a matchstick. Patricia's mother, Doris Curran, made three journeys around this time. She drove up the path twice and down it once. Webb said, She must have kept her eyes fixed on the pathway, for it is rugged and torturous. If any of her daughter's belongings had been there, She would not have failed to see them, but she saw nothing. Patricia's brother, Desmond Curran, also walked up the path and drove down it over the course of that evening. and George Chambers, the newspaper delivery boy, also walked the route around the same time the murder allegedly occurred, yet neither of them saw anything. Webb contended, after my matchstick experiment, can there be the faintest doubt that the possessions must have been found very much earlier than 3am, if they had been left there at the time Gordon said they were? If it were true that the items were placed there later, then Webb was confident and Hay Gordon could not have put them there. The RAF technician was at the camp shortly after 7pm on the night in question and this was corroborated by multiple airmen. Writing for the People newspaper, Webb also questioned how if Gordon had walked Patricia Curran home like he claimed, did not one person see them. There were several eyewitnesses who all reported seeing Patricia walking from the bus stop alone and some who saw her close to Glen House. The newspaper delivery boy George said he saw her walking close to the driveway and she was alone. Furthermore, Webb heard from a man named Thomas Hugh Elliott, who told the reporter he was standing near Glen House admiring the sea when he saw Patricia. He knew both Patricia and Ian Gordon, but was adamant that Patricia was alone. Elliot said, I am very definite that there was no one on the sidewalk or footpath from the butcher's shop to the Glen Gate, and as far distant as I could see. If they had been standing together at the time alleged, I would have seen them. Duncan Webb's detailed reporting on Patricia Curran's murder caused a stir and a petition was filed for Ian Hay-Gordon's release. However, the Northern Ireland Minister of Home Affairs Lieutenant Colonel Topping rejected the petition. He said, This decision follows a comprehensive review by the Minister of the whole circumstances of the case including detailed consideration of a petition lodged by the parents of Gordon praying for his release, of additional evidence in its support, and the transcript of the evidence given at trial. Webb responded to the decision and urged Topping to re-examine the medical reports from the esteemed psychiatrist, who also reached the conclusion that Gordon was innocent. The psychiatrist in question was a specialist of such eminence that he had been called in by the Home Office and the Director of Public Prosecutions multiple times. Undeterred, Webb continued writing about Gordon's innocence, focusing on the confession. Quote, Ian Gordon confessed to a murder he did not commit because without, in the slightest degree, intending to do so, The police brainwashed him. Webb argued that over the course of the interrogations, Gordon, who he described as sensitive and gullible, had come to believe that he had committed the crime. Webb contended, My investigation has shown that Gordon made many important mistakes in this supposed account of the crime. My theory of how he came to make those errors is simple. He did not commit the murder. According to doctors at the psychiatric facility, Gordon consistently denied that he had killed Patricia Curran. Gordon had even told staff that he must have been drugged on the third day of the interrogation, since he felt sleepy before he made the confession. Where pleaded in a final article on the matter that a full public inquiry needed to be conducted to investigate the evidence he had uncovered. He concluded with, Nothing less, in my view, will fulfil the demands of justice. While the articles were groundbreaking, a full inquiry was not ordered. Ian Hay Gordon remained locked up. It was not until September 4th, 1960, the Governor of Northern Ireland announced that Gordon was to be released into the care of his parents, who lived in Dollarclack, Manonshire. Several days later, Gordon met with Ken Gardner, another reporter for the people. Gardner shook Gordon's hand and said, I shall leave no stone unturned until I clear your name. Tragically, Duncan Webb passed away after his diligent investigation into the case, so Gardner took the reins. Gordon said of his confession, I was tired, nervy and agitated. The ceaseless questioning built an image of the crime in my mind with myself as the person responsible. I had no fear of the consequences when I confessed. I hardly knew what I was saying anyway. I just wanted the questions to stop. Gordon claimed that when the police began interviewing the airmen at RAF Edenmore, a lot of them fixed alibis amongst themselves. Although they knew they were innocent, the tension of the investigation was heavy and some struggled to remember exactly where they were during the period of the killing. It was easier to provide a false alibi than have no alibi that could be corroborated. Gordon said that initially Corporal Henry Connor provided him with an alibi, but he later decided to tell the police that the alibi was false. Gordon said, it was terrible. I felt that a slimy net was closing in on me and there would be no escape. No matter which way I thought about my situation, it seemed inevitable that the police would arrest me. According to Gordon, the details of his confession had come from information he learned from talking to people at the RAF camp or it was even suggested to him during his interrogation. Despite his release, Gordon could not escape the shadow of suspicion that hung over him. It was a heavy weight that seemed to follow him everywhere he went. The belief that he was guilty lingered like a dark cloud, obscuring any chance of true freedom. Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand, and now Scent is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit scentair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Scent Air diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours, and the Scent app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Centair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safe for families, and EcoVadis is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to scentair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code Among Us for an extra 25% off your first order at centair.com. Decades passed, and in June 1995 an advertisement in the Cambridge Evening News asked, Were you in White Abbey? November 12th 1952? it appeared that researchers were seeking information about the murder of Patricia Curran. Just four months later, Ian Hay Gordon began proceedings to try and overturn his conviction. He was now 63 years old, living alone in a small top-floor tenement flat in Glasgow. He had spent the past 33 years of his life working as a stockroom assistant at the warehouses of W.H. Collins & Sons, under a new identity. When he went public and professed his innocence in 1995, fighting to have his conviction overturned, Gordon's co-workers were stunned. They believed wholeheartedly in his innocence, and the Warehouse Union Chapel raised a collection to contribute to his defence fund. Gordon appealed to the Northern Ireland Secretary of State, Sir Patrick Mayhew, for an independent inquiry. He said, I am determined to clear my name, as much for my deceased parents' sake as for myself. I did not murder Patricia Curran. I wasn't there. Gordon had the support of Maria Fife, MP for Maryhill, who asked for a pardon to be considered. In 1998, Gordon's counsel sent a dossier of new information which undermined the confession to the Criminal Cases Review Commission, an official independent body which investigates possible miscarriages of justice. Gordon commented to the Guardian newspaper. This has been like a weight on the back of my neck. I am delighted to get this chance to clear my name. Among the new pieces of evidence was an interview with Elizabeth Eaton, a neighbour of the Curran family at the time of the killing. Elizabeth insisted that around 9.15pm she heard a woman scream hours after it was believed Patricia had been murdered. It was 47 years since Patricia was killed, and Ian Hay Gordon's fresh plight for his name to be cleared dominated the media. During the murder investigation, no one dared to question how it was conducted, but now the public was eager to learn more. Generations of people in the small village of White Abbey had grown up knowing certain facts about the case, along with various rumours. As one man, Hugh MacDonald, told reporter John Linklater, there was never a feeling that justice was served, or a sense of something unfinished. Another local, Phyllis Hardy, recalled, My family all said Gordon must have been used as a patsy. That's the word I can remember them using because I remember thinking that I didn't know what it meant. Councillor Mark Langhammer was of the belief there was a cover-up. Quote, I think the idea of Ian Hay Gordon receiving proper advocacy and independent legal representation is inconceivable in these circumstances. It was in everyone's interest to make sure that someone was fitted up for this, that it was sorted out. While Ian Hay Gordon was trying to clear his name, it was publicly revealed for the first time that the Royal Ulster Constabulary did not interview Justice Lancelot Curran, Patricia's father. Instead, they told his solicitor and family friend Malcolm Davidson to collect statements from the family and later hand them to the police. A request was immediately made to search Glen House, but this was denied by the Curran family and the police simply accepted it without any resistance. It would be more than 12 hours before an official post-mortem was carried out, and another week before the family home was finally searched. It appeared to the detectives that Patricia's bedroom had recently been redecorated. Lancelot had told officers at the time that he found out from Patricia's friend John Steele that she had caught the 5pm bus. He said that he had called John shortly before Patricia was found but John was adamant that Lancelot called at 2.10am, ten minutes after Patricia's body was discovered. John said, He gave the impression that he thought I'd kept his daughter out reasonably late, so his questioning was slightly aggressive. This discrepancy was known to the police, but they never attempted to clear it up there was another issue regarding Patricia's belongings. On the afternoon before she was killed, she had purchased a packet of cigarettes. These were not found at the alleged murder scene, nor was her front door key. When the current family were made aware of this, Patricia's mother Doris explained that family members often climbed in through the downstairs bedroom window. She claimed that she had let herself into the home that evening at around 6pm this same way. At the time, nobody questioned her. But looking back, this could have been an elaborate attempt to explain why Patricia was not carrying a front door key. Shortly after Doris said she let herself in through the window, Lancelot ordered a taxi home from the Ulster Reform Club. He typically stayed there until after midnight, but that evening he ordered a taxi at 6.40pm. According to the taxi driver, when Lancelot arrived, he couldn't get into the house. It was bolted from the inside, and a dog was barking. The taxi driver found this odd because Doris was always there to let her husband in. These curious details suggested that something could have occurred much earlier in the evening. Was it something the Currens never disclosed to the police? This led to many speculating that Patricia was neither killed by Gordon nor an intruder, but had been attacked by someone in her family. However, people were puzzled as to what motive the family could have had to kill Patricia and then conceal the truth. Patricia Curran had been a young, independent woman. The year before she enrolled in university, she had taken a job with a firm of construction contractors. She drove a van around building sites and earned her own money while doing so. She was also introduced to a new section of society, unlike her parents and brothers, who mingled with the wealthy elite. Her family referred to her job as a private chauffeur and openly displayed their disapproval. Stranger still, Doris Curran was admitted to a psychiatric hospital soon after her daughter's murder. Some wondered whether her mental break was a result of something she knew. And this was only the tip of the proverbial iceberg. Doris had long been harbouring negative feelings about her daughter. She claimed that Patricia did not keep the right company, she did not dress appropriately, and she did not keep her bedroom tidy. Investigators had reportedly uncovered that Patricia had gone out with three separate men in the year before her murder, one of whom was married. They also discovered a letter inside Glen House, which contained complaints about a proposed, quote, "'Disposal of the family home.'" Police believe that Doris wanted to keep the house, as did Michael, one of Patricia's brothers, but the others, especially Patricia, wanted to get rid of it. The family was facing extreme financial difficulties, Despite Lancelot's salary as a judge, he was addicted to gambling. He had lost a year's salary playing cards at the Reform Club back in 1950. That same year, he transferred the home from joint ownership with Doris to a 999 year lease in his own name. The motive behind this was never revealed. But it is possible he was attempting to extract the value of the home or obtain a loan against it. In July 1998, Ian Hay Gordon was devastated to learn that three appeal judges ruled that he had already been acquitted of the crime due to the guilty but insane verdict at trial. This meant that Gordon was not even qualified to appeal. By now he was in ill health. He was frail and suffering from a chronic lung disorder, but was more determined than ever to clear his name before he died. He said, I think I stopped to exist the day they found me guilty. I'm still that twenty-year-old in the body of an old man. I have no life. There is no way I am ever giving up. Gordon revealed that during the interrogations, the police threatened to tell his mother of his brief affairs with other men. Despite his setback, in February of the following year, Gordon was informed by the Home Office that he could proceed with a private member's bill, which would grant him the right to appeal against his conviction. Gordon was ecstatic and said to the media, this is fantastic news and it is very encouraging. His excitement was short-lived, however, as in April this decision was reversed. The Criminal Cases Review Commission said the case could not be treated as a priority because Gordon was not in custody. As frustrating as this development was, it was followed by an explosive revelation in June when old police documents were unearthed. They referenced three crucial telephone calls from the night Patricia was killed. The first came from Lancelot to the police at 1.45am. He reported his daughter missing. He said she had left Belfast on the 5pm bus but declined the constable's offer to come to the house. Just five minutes later, Doris also called the police. She was hysterical and begged the constable to come out to Glen House. Officer Edward Rutherford arrived on his bicycle and was greeted by Lancelot. Moments after he arrived, Desmond shouted that he had found his sister's body. This was at 2am. The third phone call was between Lancelot and Patricia's friend John Steele. Lancelot told the police he made the call sometime around 1.10am, but both John and his parents confirmed the phone call was received after 2am. Which meant it was after Patricia was found dead. This led to the question if Lancelot already knew his daughter was dead, why did he need information on her whereabouts? Despite these peculiarities, the lead investigator on the case told officers to focus their attention on other possibilities. In July 1999, the Criminal Cases Review Commission announced they were examining the case. So where are we now? The following year... Gordon won the chance to have his conviction overturned after the Criminal Cases Review Commission ordered the Court of Appeal to reconsider the conviction. It had been 50 years in the making, and over those 50 years details of corruption and cover-ups had seeped to the surface. In Northern Ireland during the 1950s, there was no chance a family as influential as the Currens would be questioned, whether that be by the public or the police. But now, things had changed. All of the evidence that had been made public gave way to a heartbreaking revelation that Ian Hay Gordon was the victim of a miscarriage of justice. Voicing what it meant to him for a positive outcome, Gordon said, I've always maintained my innocence. I made up my mind that I would keep going until I cleared my name. It would mean everything to me. He arrived at the Belfast Court of Appeal on October 24, 2000. Opening the appeal, Sir Lewis Blom Cooper QC said that the late detective Superintendent John Capstick Who obtained what was labelled the confession was lying when he told the original trial that Gordon's statement had been voluntarily dictated. Finally, on December twentieth, the Northern Ireland Court of Appeal announced they had quashed Ian Hay Gordon's conviction. They had ruled that the confession was inadmissible. It was the cornerstone of the prosecution's case and without this they had no evidence against him. Following the announcement Gordon said I am overjoyed to have my name finally cleared and become an ordinary individual once again. After years of living under the shadow of suspicion Gordon could finally breathe a sigh of relief. The weight pressing down on him was lifted, and he was free to live his life without being considered a murderer. The relief was tinged with a sense of injustice, knowing he had suffered for a crime he did not commit. Despite this, he lived what was left of his life to the fullest. Ian Hay-Gordon passed away at his home in Glasgow in 2012. The mystery as to who killed Patricia Curran still remains unsolved. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on this episode, please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com.
1: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.